open up to Genesis chapter 37. Let me say, as you're turning there, one of the things that stood out to me or, um, as we were singing that, uh, that refrain in the last song, when it talked about the glory of your goodness, right? Uh, do you remember when, this has nothing to do with our sermon today, but it struck me, so I'm going to throw it out there to you. Uh, do you remember when Moses is on the mountain in uh, Exodus 32 through 34, I think it is, he's on the mountain, uh, the Israelites down in the camp have committed idolatry with the golden calf, and the Lord is threatening to just do away with all of them. Moses intercedes, and the Lord says, okay, I won't destroy them. I'll stay with God." And one of the ways that Moses wants confirmation that God is going to remain true and faithful to them is that he wants God to show him more of himself. Like, I know if you do, if you, if you show me a sign of, of good faith, I, I, I can rest more confidently in your assurances that you're not going to cast us off if you continue to, to give me more of yourself. And so Moses frames that question or that request by, show me your glory. And do you remember what God says in response? I mean, one, he says, well, no one can look on me and live. But Moses says, I want to see your glory, and God says in response, I will cause my goodness to pass before you. In part, that has to mean, at the very least, that the goodness of God is so immense and is so great that even the goodness of God is sufficient to constitute His glory. Right? It is, it is much more in, my, in keeping with my line of thinking to think of the glory of God in terms of power and strength and might, but to remember that one of the things that makes God glorious is that He is so good. And it is a tremendous thing to have our eyes and our hearts opened up to that reality and to see not only that God is good, but that He has been good to us. Again, has nothing to do with the sermon. Well, maybe it does. I don't know. Just Genesis 37. Absolutely. Genesis 37. Follow along with me as I read. We're not going to read the entire chapter, but we're going to read a good chunk of it. That's uh, technical terminology there. They teach you that in seminary. A good chunk. 37.1, now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brother said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? 
Or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers. Good move, Joseph. This will probably go well. Lo, I have had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come and I will send you to them. And he said to him, I will go. Then he said to him, Go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. A man found him. Behold, he was wandering in the field. The man gives him directions as to where he can find his brothers. For the sake of time, skip down to verse 18 with me. When they saw Joseph from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Now then... Come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, Let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father." So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. Then they sat down to eat a meal. And as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Bow with me in prayer. Father, how we need you right now to be able to see the wonder that has been granted to us who at one time rebelled wholeheartedly against your chosen man, your chosen deliverer, but in your mercy, you gave us eyes to see Jesus for who he is. You took proud, unyielding hearts and humbled them so that we would submit to you and so that we could gain the fullness of salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. Help us to see your glory in this passage, in Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 37 through 50 is the last unit of the book of Genesis, and it it should be taken together as a unit. One of the things that's a little bit interesting about this last unit is that we would naturally expect to get uh, more detail or more information about Jacob, who's the head of the family right now, and Jacob still, still figures prominently in the story, But far more ink and far more detail is given 
over to Joseph and what's going on with him. The reason for that is because although Jacob is the father, is the patriarch who's presiding over the family, the chosen seed, what the author of Genesis is doing as he brings us to the end of this first account is that he is trying to set the scene for the transition from God's chosen people existing as a family unit to God's chosen people existing as a nation. That transformation takes place from the end of Genesis to the beginning of Exodus. And in part that happens by this temporary transfer of family out of the promised land down to Egypt where they will continue to thrive and prosper and multiply, becoming a nation happens through this family. Now, that being said, one of the things that you cannot escape just like you cannot escape this from any of other portions of Genesis, especially starting at chapter 12 with Abraham, is that if you look close enough, and oftentimes you don't even have to look very hard, if this is the means by which this family, if this family is the means by which God is going to bring His blessing and His grace to the entire earth, we are on very, very shaky ground. This is not a picture of the cleavers, right? For you kids who don't do the black and white reruns, leave it to Beaver. Idyllic family, mother and father loved each other, the boys were so respectful and kind. Little Beef, he got in trouble every now and then, but you know, he always came back around by the end. This is not that, all right? On your own time, if you want, even before we get to this disaster, this train wreck in process, you can go back and you can look at a couple other snapshots of what's going on with Jacob's family back in chapter 34, which we did not cover in our sermon series, and towards the end of chapter 35 in verse 22. I'm not going to do that for right now. You can do that later. It's usually better for adults to read those passages because it can be pretty grim. Here's what I want to do, though. I want to look at chapter 37 here, and I want us to draw our attention or to set our minds on the idea that what's happening here is that the chosen family is rejecting God's chosen man. The family that God has chosen to do His work, to bring about His purposes, is paradoxically rejecting the one in their midst that God has chosen to deliver and save them at some later date. And we're going to break this down in two ways. One, we're going to look at at problem cases. One, we're going to look at the problem with Joseph. The problem with choosing Joseph. So start with me. The problem with Joseph. 37, 1 through 11. First thing that we can say right off the bat is that part of the problem or the difficulty that makes Joseph maybe an unlikely or not necessarily the most ideal candidate is totally beyond his control. That is, Joseph has no control over the fact that his father loves him more than all of his other brothers, favors him, and not only in a a discreet, private way, but does so publicly 
so that everyone knows who Jacob's favorite is. Joseph doesn't have anything to do with that. Nevertheless, it makes things really awkward. So the whole thing that goes on with this this robe or this tunic that's given to him, the translation is a little bit iffy. Most of our versions probably say something like a multicolored tunic. Other people say, well, it may not be multicolored, but it may be like some sort of long sleeve tunic. The, the idea, what, whatever we picture in our mind, the point is, is that what Jacob gives to his son is a garment to wear that will distinguish him from the rest of his brothers. He gives him something like a t-shirt that says, number one son. And this apparently is just what Joseph wears on a regular basis. He sits down at the dinner table across from his older brothers. He's one of the youngest in the family, next to the youngest. He sits across from his brothers sporting number one tunic as they sit there and glare at him eating their meal. They go out to the field to work together. Joseph makes sure he's got his number one tunic on. Over and over and over again, the brothers can't get away from the fact that the one that dad loves best is Joseph. And we're told in verse 4, the author makes it clear that that in part because of this favoritism and coupled with that, in verses 2 through 4, Joseph appears to be sort of like not only dad's favorite, but dad's little pet. He's out with his brothers. His brothers do something that they probably shouldn't have done. And what does Joseph do? He goes running back to dad to tell dad what the brothers did so that they get in trouble. So dad's favorite, dad's little pet. It's no wonder then that you get down to verse 4 and we read, So they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. They could not even give him a warm greeting. They could not say, peace. They despised him. Then we come to the next paragraph starting in verse 5. And as if Joseph is not already in an awkward situation, Joseph takes a bad situation and makes it infinitely worse. Look at verse 5 and then look at verse 8. Two times the phrase is repeated in verse 5 and 8. Then Joseph had a dream, verse 5, when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And then we're told what the dream is. And at the end of the dream, we come down to verse 8. So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Just a little side note, there seems to be a word play here in the Old Testament. Do you know what the, word, what the name Joseph means? It means something like, may he increase or give me more, right? That was what his mom wanted. Joseph was her first child after years of barrenness. Give me more. She names him Joseph. In the text, when it says they hated him even more, it's Joseph's name, the name for increase, turned into a verb form. So their hatred for Joseph, Josephed. Right? They despise with every ounce of their being this boy, this teenager. And why? Well, in part because Joseph doesn't have the good sense to keep his mouth shut. Joseph gets a dream, 
And the first thing that he has to do is go tell his brothers about this dream that he had. And not just some crazy dream, but some dream that says, hey, by the way, brothers, he's probably holding on to his number one son tunic as he says this, by the way, I had a dream last night, and everyone would have understood that by having a dream, he was getting some sort of divine revelation. That's, that's the implication of a dream. By the way, brothers, I had an interesting dream last night. I dreamed that we were out working in the field and that my sheaf stood up tall and straight, and your sheaves all gathered around my sheaf and bowed down. Not enough that Dad loves me more than you, not enough that I'm dad's little pet, but there's coming a day when all of you are going to bow down to me. I'm just telling you what the dream said. They hated him even more. And then he has a second dream. Oh, he can't wait to tell him the second dream. This one is even better than the first dream because now it's not just his sheaf and his brother's sheaves. But now his father is actually in the picture. The sun and moon and 11 stars are all gathering around, bowing down to Joseph. And this dream is so outrageous that it actually draws a rebuke from Jacob. Jacob says, Joseph, what are you talking about? Am I and your mom, am, am I actually your dad? You think I'm going to bow down to you? And his brothers were jealous of him. So here's the picture then. We know because of the fact that Joseph has received these dreams, and if you know the story of Joseph, or if you've read ahead, you know that these dreams actually come to fruition. But even if you didn't know that, going on the assumption that these dreams have been given to him by some sort of divine revelation, we are working off of the assumption that God has given Joseph this insight into what is going to happen in the future, that God is telling Joseph uniquely about this special plan that he has. And Joseph rather than sitting and meditating, reflecting on it, or perhaps quietly going to his father to try to make sense out of this, Joseph can't wait to shout it from the mountaintop how all of those members in his family one day are going to be bowing and bending the knee to him. This is not a flattering picture of the man that God has chosen to deliver his people. He's daddy's little pet. He's a braggart. He's self-centered. And he doesn't have enough common sense to read the room and know when to keep his mouth shut. But this is the man that God has chosen. Let me pause here just for a second. Make a couple points of application. At the risk of turning this just into sort of a, a, an Aesop's fable kind of moralism, all right, let, me, let me make at least a couple real-life practical applications. One, let me say a word to, to you parents. All right? We drop in on this story, Joseph is 17 years old. Joseph at 17 is nowhere near the man that he will be by the time we reach the end of Genesis. You take, you take Joseph in chapter 37 and you line that picture up with Joseph in Genesis chapter 50 and it is a night and day difference. 
Here's my encouragement to you parents and grandparents, you caregivers of young kids. Do not judge them too quickly, even though you may feel like it. God help us if anyone had taken a snapshot of us at 16, 17, 18 years old and said, what you see right now is what you're going to get 10, 20, 30 years from now. Would anyone want to hold up their 17-year-old self as a way to say, well, this is who you get. It's not going to get any better than this. Joseph is a reminder, in, at least in a very simple way, that in part because of the fact that Joseph is going to suffer, in part because of the trouble that he brings on himself, and yes, he suffers unjustly, but because of the trouble that God is going to put him through, God is going to be faithful to refine and purify Joseph. Joseph is not going to remain an arrogant, cocky 17-year-old who has all of the secrets of life figured out and can't wait to tell you how it ought to run. Let me say a word to you young people, and by that, 18 and younger, we could probably say 25 and younger. It probably depends on how old you are. We might even want to say 30 and younger. We'll just say young people, all right? Young people, especially teenagers and kids, understand that just because you know something to be true does not necessarily mean you always need to open your mouth and share it. Okay? There's a reason that Proverbs lays such a heavy emphasis on sons listening to their father and to their mother more than they talk. Because Proverbs coming from God, has a real-life understanding that the younger you are, the more listening you ought to do. Let me, so, let me take that, and let me just say, this is not just for young people. This is, this is for all of us, okay? Let me draw your attention to a couple Proverbs. Here's Proverbs chapter 12, verse 23. A prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. Let me, listen to that first part. A prudent man conceals knowledge. Do you know what that means? That means that sometimes the better part of wisdom is not volunteering to people what you know. Even if it's true. You don't have to talk about everything that you know. Sometimes it's good, it's just good to be quiet. Proverbs 15:28, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. Okay, so let's say that you want to be a wise man, a wise woman, and you recognize that not everything that you know needs to be spouted out to everyone as if you're God's answer book to questions that people are not asking. Even when someone asks you 
to give an answer or an explanation for something that maybe you know or something that could be insightful for them. A wise person, the heart of a wise person, causes them to think about how they should answer, what they should say. We have, in this technological age, an entire area of life and society that runs diametrically opposed to this way of thinking. Social media platforms are given to us in part so that we can air and vent any thought that crosses our brilliant minds at any time of the day, whether people want to hear it or not. Christians sometimes can be the worst. You ever get on Facebook? You ever get on Twitter? You ever look at that dumpster fire? You're having a good day. Life is good. And then all of a sudden, someone has to tell you why life is rotten, why it's miserable, or why you're not doing what you ought to do, or why you should be thinking this way or that way. There's something to be said for God's people being confident enough in the revelation of the Lord that they can say, because this is God's Word and because this is God's revelation, it is not incumbent upon me to see to it that it is fulfilled or that it is spread in the way that I deem necessary. If this is God's Word, God's truth and God's knowledge is going to bear the fruit that He intends for it to bear regardless of whether I help Him or not. And sadly, there are many times when Christians find themselves as modern-day Josephs. We have insight into the truth of God. We have the mind of God revealed to us. We know what this world is about and what it's moving towards. We know the answers to life's dilemmas and problems. But we go about sharing that knowledge and that revelation in the worst way possible. We come across so arrogant and so cocky. Sometimes it's good just to be quiet. And the other thing that tips you off to the idea that what Joseph is doing here really is not so much about promoting or broadcasting God's Word is that the reason that he's eager to broadcast God's Word is not because Joseph wants to say, listen to what God has said but rather, look at me. What do you do when you talk to people? Whether it's on a social media platform or whether it's on a date or a meal or, or sitting in your own home, when you share things with people, when you give them your spiritual insights that are just burning inside of you to share, why are you sharing it? Are you trying to impress someone with your wisdom and your knowledge because you've got it all together? Or are you overcome and joyous over the goodness of God's truth and grace and you're wanting people to see not you but to see God? 
Joseph isn't so much concerned about what God is going to do from him so much as Joseph is concerned that he looks good and looks great. And as a result, Joseph is sort of the anti-hero. This is not the person that is going to gender a lot of well wishes and favorable thoughts. He is not going to persuade his brothers carrying on this way. Joseph is an unlikely character to be chosen as God's future deliverer, but God has chosen him nonetheless. That leads us to number two, the problem not with Joseph, but the problem with Joseph's brothers. There is a tension and a paradox that runs through this. On the one hand, everything that Joseph has said is true. He's not making this up. Everything that God has revealed to him is going to be fulfilled. It is going to come to pass. He may not have communicated it in the best way. He may have even communicated it in sinful ways. But it is nevertheless true. The problem, though, is that when you begin to move from Joseph to his brothers, Joseph's brothers show themselves to be unable to consider the truthfulness of this revelation and unwilling to respond to it. They are unable and unwilling to consider, let alone to respond to the idea that this is a word from the Lord and they ought to take it seriously. Rather than thinking, huh, is it actually possible that this little jerk is going to be in a position that we need to pay attention to, they dismiss it out of hand. And they dismiss it out of hand and just increase their hatred for him. One of the things that becomes obvious as you continue to move through the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, this, this interaction, this dysfunction in the chosen family is the very kind of dysfunction that is going to characterize God's people throughout Scripture. Hold your place here. Go to Acts chapter 7. Start at Acts chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Let me, we're going to drop in at two places. This is Stephen giving a defense in this religious court that's been drummed up. And Stephen starts to go on this sort of 3,000-foot view of Israel's history to get to a main point that he only brings out at the very end of his speech. At one point in his review of Israel's history, he actually brings out the part of Israel's history that pertains to Joseph and his brothers. So in Acts chapter 7, verse 9, Stephen says, The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him 
and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Do you hear that? Stephen is is cueing his audience in. Hey, you remember what happened back with Joseph and his brothers? Remember how they hated him? They turned a deaf ear to what he was trying to reveal to them. And Joseph actually got a better hearing from pagan Egyptians than he did his own family. And then he goes on and he says, oh, and by the way, that also happened with Moses. Moses was ignored and rejected time and time again. And then at the end of his speech, skip down to verses 51 through 53 in Acts chapter 7. Stephen takes this episode with Joseph and Moses and all these other people, and he ties it all together this way and says this, Acts 7, 51, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become, you who received the laws ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Stephen says, what happened back in Genesis 37... Is just one piece of a long history that God's people have where God sends to them messengers and deliverers to bring them out of their sin, to save them from destruction, and God's people will not have it. And we sit here comfortably and we say, oh, those miserable Old Testament Israelites. No, this this story that tracks through the chosen race, this is the nature of humanity itself. Even when the final messenger that's sent is no one less than God's own Son, it is not enough to turn the hearts and minds of people who are bent and determined to rule their own lives. prideful people who in no way will ever freely choose to bow and bend the knee to someone who rules and reigns over us. How in the world do we find ourselves seated in a congregation like this on Sunday morning proclaiming Christ as Lord? How does that happen? It happens because God in His grace and in His mercy opens the eyes of blind hard-hearted men and women to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If God had not intervened in your life and in my life, we would be no different than Joseph's brothers. We would have God's appointed messenger, His appointed deliverer, His means of salvation standing right in front of us declaring, I'm it, I'm the way. I'm the one to provide you with salvation and hope and life. We would have Him, Jesus, God in the flesh, standing in front of us, and we would shake our fist, and we would hate Him for it. 
but God being rich in mercy gives to us an understanding that is beyond our comprehension. He gives us the ability to see what natural eyes cannot see. He gives us the ability to see Jesus Christ for who He truly is so that rather than shaking my fist in God's face, I can bend the knee and submit. And I can do so not grudgingly, but with joy and gladness. And I find that this ruler that I come to is not someone who rules and reigns over me in pride or arrogance, but he is lowly and humble. He calls to people who are tired and weary, and he says, Come to me, and I will give you rest. He says, You call me Lord and Master, and I am. But hand me the towel so I can wash your feet. And although he has every right to demand our loyalty and our allegiance to him, he draws us in with compassion and mercy and affection. We people who are hateful and spiteful and who want nothing more than to glorify ourselves, are changed into people who rejoice in being ruled by Jesus Christ. That is in part what we celebrate when we come to communion. Part of what we celebrate is the contrast between the mindset and the attitude of a Genesis 37 and the mindset and the attitude of a meal in the upper room. What do Joseph's brothers do when they strip him of his royal clothes and they throw him down into this deep, dark pit? Are you back in Genesis 37? Verse 25, after they throw him in the pit, what do they do? They sit down and they eat. No doubt, happy and satisfied with this turn of events. Happy and satisfied and content in their rejection of the very man who God is going to raise up to save them from certain death. But God in His mercy, when He opens our eyes and when He brings us to understand that the man that was cast off and left to die, who in fact was killed and crucified but was not left to rot in the grave but was raised back up, as a way to signify our satisfaction and contentment in that new life in Christ, what does the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit, what does He do for us? He says, come, sit, have a meal. Because when you sit and when you have a meal, 
you're able to enjoy and reflect on the fact that the work has already been done. The rebellious work was done in Genesis 37. We got rid of that kid, good, let's have something to eat. The work of our salvation has been accomplished, and so we are able to come and we are able to sit down together and eat, not with a spirit of rebellion, not delighting in our sin. We come and we sit and we gather at this meal with hearts of humility that have been graciously bent to the Lordship of Christ, and we feed on that delighting in His rule and in His reign over us. So before we go to the Lord's table, let, let me also then present a challenge to those of you who are sitting in here. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have not submitted your life to Him as your rightful King and found your life and your joy in Him, I, I say this unapologetically, but also graciously, this meal is not for you. This meal, this, this bread, this drink is given to us to remind us that we are feeding on the life-saving power of Jesus Christ. And if you have not stepped into that relationship with Him, this meal is not for you. This is a family meal. But listen, here's the good news. In a split second, you can go from being one of the rebellious ones sitting on the outside to being a full-fledged member of the family. You can be brought in by new birth to sit at the family table and to eat freely. All because of what Christ has done in His death on the cross and in His resurrection in power over sin and death. As we make the transition, opening your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. <clears throat> Let me draw just one, one parallel that I think exists in some small way between Joseph and Christ. In verses 12 and following, when the focus shifts to Joseph's brothers and how they are going to eliminate or get rid of Joseph, one of the things that's easily missed as we're reading is that from verses 12 on to the end of the chapter, Joseph does not utter another word. He's silent. Now, that's not to say that in real life he wasn't crying out to his brothers and asking them to stop. It's just that for whatever reason, the author of Genesis displays the persecution of Joseph and this betrayal in such a way that Joseph, in our minds, remains silent through the whole thing. Joseph suffers silently, as it were, not knowing and not understanding what is happening or what it is that he's in store for. He can't possibly know. Isaiah 53, verse 7. 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? One of the amazing things about celebrating the sacrifice of Christ is that Christ sacrificed himself for us fully aware with perfect knowledge of every single thing that he was doing. He was not a helpless victim. Joseph suffers silently in sort of a creative poetic way, being totally bewildered as having this thrust upon him. Jesus goes and he suffers silently saying before he suffers, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. And because Jesus knew that his suffering was the purpose and plan of the Father to bring many sons and daughters to glory. He suffered silently, and he took every ounce, every bit of the wrath of God poured out on sin as it should be punished, and yet did not recoil, did not resist it, took it on himself so that we could sit here freely this morning and enjoy the life that has been given to us as a gift in Jesus Christ. That's the kind of deliverer that God's people need. As the men come forward, the elements will be passed around. If you'd like to open up the little cup to get at the wafer and to, uh, to have the juice ready, you're welcome to do that. But please do not partake of the elements until we're all ready to do so together, and I'll, I'll let you know when that time is. But I would encourage you, as uh, Jenny plays on the piano, just to sit quietly and reflect on the goodness of God in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ.
again in Isaiah 53. Listen to verses 10 and 11. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, talking about the suffering servant, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Two things, or two phrases, I just want to draw to your attention. One is when Isaiah says that if this servant would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. That's you. If, if you're here and you're taking part in this meal, even as you take part of this meal, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in communion with each other are looking down at you and are saying, this is what it was all for. When they look at you and me taking part in this communion, we are his offspring. And in the next verse, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. It is amazing to think that God, through the work of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, takes undeserving men and women transforms them, changes them, does it over a long and tiresome process where we fall many times along the way, and yet from day one, the Son looks on us and He never says they weren't worth it. He will see and be satisfied. Christ is satisfied and content with His suffering because he has an opportunity to watch his people now remember what he has done for them. And every ounce of pain, every memory of suffering, he said, it's been worth it for that. I'm satisfied. So take with me the, the wafer, which represents the body of Christ, and take and eat, considering that Christ was beaten and bruised so that you could be made whole. Take also the cup and consider that Christ did not go part way to death, but poured himself out to the last drop, giving his life fully so that people who walked in death could be made alive again. Take and drink. Now, Father, we ask that as you use this ordinance that you have given to your church, that you would use it to solidify in the hearts and minds of your people the certainty of your promises, the fact that you are no longer standing against us as our judge, but you stand with us as our Father, that we have been united permanently to Jesus Christ. We can refer to him, see him as our brother and as our mediator. Help us to know this with confidence because of your Holy Spirit who assures us 
of the faith that we have in Jesus Christ and cause us to leave this place with joy and exultation, being willing to make a defense to anyone who would ask of it for the hope that is in us and willing to suffer the shame and the slings of the world around us as we follow in the footsteps of our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray for this. Amen. Let's stand as we say. Oh